0: You're in John chapter 21. Uh, The next several weeks... We finished our Sunday evening series going through the book of Malachi, looking at Malachi's prophecy. And for the next several weeks or so, we're just going to pop around to some passages uh, that have been on my mind lately. I've been stewing and studying the Word, seeing where God would have us go next. And I have some direction, have some places I want to go. But as that continues to marinate, if you will, we're going to pop around to some different passages throughout the Scriptures, both New and Old Testament. And this evening, uh, the Lord has been bringing me back to this passage in John chapter 21. "Truth be told, a little inside baseball for you. As I approached John 21, I had every intention of studying and examining the last half of the chapter, but as the Spirit led, he was kept drawing me to these first 14 verses, such that I couldn't get away from them, and such that I had to eventually just preach them, which brings me to tonight. In many ways, the two previous verses from the previous chapter, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, sort of serve, we could say, as the quote-unquote proper conclusion to the gospel of John. If you approach it from perhaps a literary perspective, those two verses really serve as a more fitting end, if you will. Notice what John says, now Jesus... With those sentences, with those words, John the Apostle very much and very succinctly just summarizes and encapsulates everything that he had been trying and endeavoring to prove throughout the previous 19 chapters. Namely, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And essentially he leaves everything up to the reader here with those verses. I have proven it to you. Now, you can test the evidence, so to speak. I've, I've shown you everything. I've played all my cards, so to speak. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Sufficiently, with all those previous chapters, very easily we can make the arguments that Jesus is God in the flesh. And yet, we have never found a version of John's Gospel without chapter 21. <laughs> All of the textual critics, if you will, who have striven to examine John 21 have strived to sort of explain some of the ways in which this particular chapter is different. Perhaps trying to explain that it was written by someone else after the fact and so on and so forth. But yet we've never found... Any example of the gospel of John without chapter 21, which I think proves a couple of things, namely the fact that it is historical, that it is inspired, but also that this chapter, as much as it might feel like an appendix, like an afterthought, it is not that <laughs> It is not a collection of a story, perhaps, that John the Apostle couldn't seem to fit anywhere else, so he just adds it to the end, sort of like it's tacked on. John 21, indeed, is not an afterthought. It's not an appendix. You know, authors will sometimes do that. They have written a work and they've come through all the editing processes. And and eventually the author realizes that some such sort of section or passage, it just can't be made to fit in with the bulk of his work. But because the author loves that particular uh, passage, perhaps, he will add it as an appendix, as an, an extra bit of reading for those who are inclined to read it after the end of the real important stuff. For example... J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, in his famous Lord of the Rings, he writes for a thousand-odd pages his wonderful tale of Frodo and the magical ring that he has to destroy. And then, at the end of the whole thing, in The Return of the King, he adds over 100 pages of appendices, just stuff that he couldn't bear not having published, I suppose. Of course, Tolkien would argue perhaps that probably this is the most important things, the things that explain everything else, uh, if you will. But to some, a hundred pages of appendices after the main story might seem anticlimactic or excessive or non-essential. <laughs> I'd just say all that to say, John 21 is not non-essential. <laughs> it's not an appendix that John has just tacked on to the end of his gospel. It is in every single way, not extraneous. It's not just something that's been lazily put here. And in fact, this entire chapter, but I would even say this beginning 14 verses is an indispensable epilogue or postscript. In which I think we are shown in a couple of brief but very powerful ways everything that Jesus had already done and proven about himself and everything that his apostles were yet to do in the decades to come. I think that's exactly what Jesus does here. Picturing instead of perhaps explicitly saying but showing through actions what was about to come for his disciples and for the world at large let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 21 as Jesus, or excuse me, the Apostle John sort of gives a summary of what's about to come as he summarizes this entire chapter. After this, John says, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way, just essentially a way to say, here's what's about to come through the next couple of verses. This is what's happening here in this scene. As John later says in verse number 14, notice this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Very much sectioning off these verses that here's how he was revealed and this is the third revelation so to speak. Of course, third meaning third in this particular gospel, the other two coming and just the previous chapter in chapter 20. If you do some of the, like the chronology of, of, of Jesus and his apostles and everyone post resurrection, this is roughly, depending on where you time it, the seventh or the eighth revelation of the, of the resurrected Lord to his followers. Nevertheless, this appearance in a lot of ways is noteworthy. It ought to draw our attention because it is so different. Not only because it gets 14 verses dedicated to it, but also because I think it shows us much of the Lord's power and also much of his heart. As we see here in verse number 2. A group of apostles, seven of them in fact, have made their way to the Sea of Tiberius, Which is just the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. That very famous body of water in which Jesus went around all of the surrounding areas teaching the kingdom that was coming. And here, this group of seven, uh, following Peter's lead, they, following his suggestion, they get in a boat and they go out onto the water to go fishing. Notice verse 2. Simon Peter Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Even though it's been suggested, perhaps, and made the point of emphasis by preachers in the past... I don't think that there's any cause to chastise or reprimand Peter here for his decision to go fishing. Some pastors have liked to do that and I think there's a point to be made perhaps. But actually as I've studied I don't think Peter's doing anything necessarily wrong. Some claim that this inclination to go fishing is akin to some sort of disobedience on Peter's part that he's going back to old habits and whatnot. Actually, I think uh, actually Peter is just Doing what he knows best as he waits for the Lord. He was told to wait for the Lord by Galilee. And such is what he and the other apostles are doing. Waiting for the Lord. And rather than twiddle his thumbs. Perhaps Peter not being a man who can sit down for very long. He gets in a boat and does what he knows. He goes fishing. (laughs) He knows the waters, he knows how to set all of the rigging, he knows all of those things. He is in a place that is comfortable as he waits for further instruction. Of course, what has Jesus just told Peter and the other apostles, notice verse 20 or ch- excuse me, chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, "Peace be with you." As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, of course, confirming the apostles that what he was about to do was to send them out in the most powerful way with the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that Peter is here defaulting on that commission. He's waiting. He's biding his time. And it just so happens that this particular night was a very unproductive, unfruitful night of fishing. They catch nothing, which I think, of course, is by design. They don't have anything to show for all their toil, for all their sweat. Back in chapter 21, look at verse 5. It says, Jesus said to them. They didn't know, of course, in verse 4, that it was Jesus. But notice what this, let's call him a figure Because for all the apostles know, uh, suddenly as the sun rises, morning is dawning, they've spent all night fishing and there's this figure on the beach shouting to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him no. Suddenly as Dawn is breaking. They hear this voice from the shoreline. They're roughly some hundred yards out onto the Sea of Galilee. And they could hear this voice asking them perhaps a very obvious question. Because if they had caught something, they would more than likely already be inland sorting through their catch. And yet here they are, still come morning, and they're still on the waters. After having to reply... Negatively to this unknown figure still on the shore. The man then, this unknown anonymous man on the beach, suddenly gives them some instructions. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. A remarkable turn of events. Because by every seemingly measurable standard, those few feet between the, the left side and the right side of the boat, if you want to be real specific, the port side and the starboard side, they shouldn't have made any sort of difference at all. They've been fishing all night long. They've probably circled the seas a couple times. They've done their due diligence in fishing in these waters, and suddenly this man is starting to bark at them these instructions. Why don't you just try the other side of the boat? Seems foolish. You can perhaps imagine. Have you ever had someone come to you after you're really frustrated, and they tell you, I have an idea, why don't you try it this way? And you mutter under your breath, I've already tried it that way 14 million different times. And then suddenly that way works. And you get really frustrated because the person who has had no involvement with the thing you're doing suddenly seems like the genius. (laughs) Something similar happens here because suddenly these professional fishermen are receiving instructions from some innocent bystander on the shores. And they're muttering under their breath, perhaps, we've already tried this side. And they try it again. Perhaps indicating how much at their wit's end they really were. And then yet to their surprise, as soon as they cast the net onto the starboard side of their little sloop, suddenly the net just balloons with fish. Such that they are barely able to haul this rigging into their boat at all. They're struggling to bring it in. And suddenly a light goes off. In the Apostle John's mind, notice verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved little title that John sort of gives to himself throughout this gospel. It says, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Suddenly he realizes, he realizes what's going on. Realizes something miraculous has happened. That that man on the shore is not just a nobody. Not just a man. Not just a bystander who happens to have a lot of luck when it comes to fishing spots. It's none other than the resurrected Lord himself. As it says in verse 4. The apostles had not been able to know that it was Jesus up to this point. And there's lots of different suggestions that have been offered for this particular fact. Perhaps it was the morning fog. It was too foggy. They couldn't see. Perhaps it was their distance from the shoreline. They couldn't quite make out who the figure was. Or perhaps Jesus prevented them from seeing. I'm not sure. There's lots of suggestions. Regardless, they couldn't see that it was Jesus. Jesus. Until this moment. Until their ship was basically capsizing because of the haul of fish that they're trying to pull in. And then yet while John might have been the first to realize that the figure, the anonymous figure, was not anonymous at all. It was their beloved teacher resurrected in the flesh. Notice what Peter does. He sticks with his character. That disciple whom Jesus loved, verse 7, Therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. I love the wording of that. That he couldn't bear it. He, he Basically, he's, been, he's had his garment hiked up so he can work really well on the ship. He, he hikes it up even more so he can swim in the water. He couldn't wait to be with Jesus. And I love the wording. He threw himself into the seas. And he started swimming ashore. Because he couldn't wait to see his Lord. He couldn't wait to be with his teacher. A wonderfully affecting image of the urgency that Peter here possesses. That yes, he even just disregards all of his brothers in arms. They're still struggling to haul in the net. And here's Peter off swimming to the shoreline. Thanks a lot Peter, thanks for your help. And even Peter leaving behind the catch of a lifetime. (laughs) It Didn't matter. There was Jesus. Everything paled in comparison to that beloved Lord who was on the beach that morning. Eventually, verse 8, the other disciples make it ashore. No thanks to Peter. The other disciples came in the boat. It says, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. The net still being dragged behind the little sloop as they exit their little boat, they, they soon find that Jesus had been there for quite a while. Notice verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus has been there for a while. The coals are still yet burning hot. as Jesus is making breakfast for his apostles. A wonderful little image, that is. Jesus then tells Peter in verses 10 and 11... Tells Peter and the rest to finish the job. Finish bringing in your catch. Bring it ashore. with. I would say this is perhaps me reading into the text a little bit. But with a little wink and a nod. As to who in fact was responsible for this haul. Notice verse 10. Jesus said to them bring in some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. Full of large fish. 153 of them. And although there were so many. The net was not torn. John providing all these particular details, perhaps distinctly recalling exactly as everything came to order, the number of fish, and even the detail that their fish or excuse me, that their net wasn't broken, which I think gives us the clue that John was reminiscing about another event where this ex- almost exact same thing happened previously. Hold your finger here for a minute and go with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. This is the occasion of the calling of some of these same exact apostles. And notice the story. I'm just going to read a couple of these verses. It says Luke 5.1. On one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, for he and all who are with him were astonished the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Almost the same sort of sequence of events. A night spent fishing. A night spent fishing with no luck. With this stranger telling them you should try it this other way. And then suddenly a great haul of fish is in the boat of Simon Peter. With John helping. And here he is a couple of years later. With lots of events happening in between Luke 5 and John 21. And no doubt I think John is remembering Remembering perhaps where it all started. It started with a sequence of events almost exactly like this. (laughs) And here John is sitting on the shore now with the resurrected Lord himself. And they're counting their fish. Jesus says, bring a couple. Let's add them to the fire. Let's have breakfast together. Notice verse 12. A wonderful invitation. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. It felt familiar, even though it was different. This invitation was perhaps uh, not something that they were surprised by. They've had many breakfasts with Jesus. Yet yeah, this one felt something was different. They realized perhaps that they were in the presence of the glory of God in the flesh. The resurrected body of Jesus was sitting around that campfire, feeding them fish, and and yes, serving them bread. What a wonderful sight. Notice verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. As on other occasions throughout the Gospels, both uh, John and the other three, I think this particular occasion is, is one in which what is not said is perhaps more important than what is said. Just to say that the actions, I think, of this text speak louder than the words of this text itself, with, I think, the obvious parallel being Luke 5, as we have just already noted, Luke 5, of course, tells of that initial moment when the disciples were called to no longer just fish after some carp. But now, let's actually be fishers of men. And of course, Jesus spent the next couple of years teaching his disciples exactly what that meant. And of course, here, I think, Jesus is about to leave them. Jesus is about to depart, and I think he had a similar purpose in mind, to ingrain in his apostles' minds exactly what he was about to do, and exactly what he was calling them to. You see, I think this amazing catch of fish, truly a miracle, and this incredible little meal that Jesus serves his disciples is actually, we could say, a preview A foretaste, if you will, uh, not just of glory divine, but of what these fishermen would soon accomplish when they're turned into evangelists in the book of Acts. I've always been fascinated by that turn of the page. You go from these apostles... Who are still bumbling around, not really sure what the resurrection means in John chapter 20. They're confused and then they see Jesus' body. Thomas confesses, my Lord and my God. And you flip the page to Acts and what do we see? A group of men who are very certain about what they believe. And who suddenly turn the world upside down. As it says in Acts chapter 17. The only difference between John 20 and Acts chapter 1 is one particular instance that is repeated over and over again. The presence of the resurrected Lord. The resurrection happened. You see these same men who were hauling in this great catch of fish would, if you'll pardon the analogy, would soon haul in an even greater catch. The church and just like this same event in John chapter 21, the catch of the church, if you will, would not be accomplished through their own efforts, through their own eloquence, regardless of all of their excellence and their winsomeness and their toil. It would be a catch that was given to them by them obeying the foolish words of God. Only because... The word of the Father would be with them and in them and would speak through them. And yes, as they were obeying the seemingly foolish advice of Christ. Little beknownst to them, they were showing what it looks like to put faith in Christ himself. Because just think about it. Jesus' advice to switch sides appears entirely foolish. Again, what is the difference between the port and the starboard? The same fish are swimming in the same waters. What really difference is it going to make if we take our net from this side and put it into this side? And yet those few feet made a world of difference. As suddenly the apostles find themselves in a boat that's almost turning upside down. Because of how much fish are just swimming into their nets. And it just so happens that's exactly what the apostles would soon do when they are declaring the words of Christ. Again, they are given this graphic picture, this amazing illustration of how Christ would use them to turn the world upside down. And it would come, yes, again, by entrusting their lives and following and speaking the foolishness of the gospel of the cross. Go with me. I want to read this passage. It's just wonderful. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You perhaps know these words from the Apostle Paul. And even though he wasn't present at this little event in John 21. I think it perfectly pictures exactly what I think Jesus is teaching his apostles. Notice verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says. For the word of the cross. It's folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is about as foolish as taking your net from one side and putting it to the other. For it is written, Paul says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Sort of like a fish swimming into the nets of these unsuccessful fishermen after all nights toiling and laboring. And yet the obedience of the folly of God himself... What happens? Droves of fish come into the nets. And yes, even Jews and Greeks are made to believe in the power of God and salvation. Paul continues, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish, just like these bumbling fishermen and carpenters and tradesmen who couldn't get out of their own way, he chose them. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. This, I think, is exactly what Christ is putting into action. Showing his apostles, it's not by their toil, it's not by their effort. It's not by their works that this work of the church is going to be accomplished. It's by the power of God in them. A power which to the world seems like folly. It seems mad. It seems insane to preach this idea that the one who was nailed to the cross was not just, uh, not just a teacher, not just a wise man, but was the savior of the world. It's not just scandalous, it's offensive. And it's insane. You have to be a little bit of a madman to believe such things. And Jesus says, that's exactly what I've called you to believe. And the folly of God's wisdom, that's how the world is made right. And yes, by the apostles believing in this man's wisdom on the beach who's telling them to just switch sides. They suddenly have a catch of fish that they can barely haul in. And by the same token, these same apostles are obeying the folly of the wisdom of Christ. And soon they're turning the world upside down by the preaching of the forgiveness of sins. To the world, it wouldn't make a lick of sense. But to the apostles, it exemplifies their faith in this wisdom and grace of Christ Jesus. Which to everyone else seems totally illogical. But by their obedience, the result is the church. And I would say by the same token, we too have been called to be fishers of men. The commission given to the apostles is the same one that is given to you and I here tonight. We've been invited To share in these delights of Christ's Word, a breakfast that's already been prepared for us. And we've been invited to announce the good news and to bring our haul ashore, so to speak. (laughs) The blessings of Christ's Word don't come because we work ourselves to death, because we are tirelessly toiling, they come because we are obedient, we are faithful. And resolved to obey this word. This word of yes seemingly foolish wisdom. It's the cross my friends. If you will the cross we could say is a meal. Which has already been prepared for us. One which the Lord welcomes us to. Come and have breakfast with me. And it's one which we've been commissioned to invite others to as well. As we exit these doors tonight. And we perhaps are shoulder to shoulder with people in this world who don't know Jesus. They are exactly the ones that we have been commissioned to invite to this meal. To the meal of the cross. The meal which seems like foolishness. But that's what sharing the gospel means. Sharing this folly that is actually wisdom. That God himself came down and dashed all of man's hopes and dreams by dying. And in so doing, he paid for all of their sins once and forever. And now we are free. Free to proclaim that news for one and for all. And to invite them to this meal on the shore. A meal on the shore that will never end. That's what Jesus is inviting all of us to. My friends, this is exactly what God has called the apostles to do. And yes, he has called us as well. To preach the folly of God's wisdom. To preach the glories of the cross. Let us pray.